welcome to the Soccer Coaching Podcast, brought to you in association with our friends at Soccer Coach Weekly, reflecting our shared ambition to help coaches have the most effective, enjoyable and successful coaching journey for them and their players. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening. Ben, welcome back to Stock Coaching Podcast. How are you? Really good, Scott. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Uh, it's great to see you again. I couldn't believe when we were hooking up again to have this conversation that it was December of 2021 when we last spoke. So it's been a while, right? I thought it was like springtime, but the time goes too fast. It was just before Christmas. And I remember I remember you saying to me, are you going to write a second book? And I said, no, I definitely won't I be writing a second book. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. And you've written one really, really quickly as well. So yeah. Well, look, let's get onto that in a bit because of, uh, I had the privilege of having a quick look through it yesterday and it looks fantastic. And I'm keen to talk about the topics that are in the chapters and stuff. Um, but just in case there's been some people out there that have missed your previous episodes or our previous episodes that we've done with the podcast, if you don't mind, just in episode 75, I think it was last time that we spoken it was really around adopting a constraints-led approach which is something you know you've been passionate about over the years and i followed your work around that really closely but for those that maybe don't know you as well as i've doing the work that i've studied studied the work that you've done um a bit of background to you what it is you've been doing what it is you currently do um and maybe just a bit about your your kind of thoughts around coaching your approach to coaching no thanks for having me um yeah i guess probably 26 27 years now i've been fortunate to be a coach um Worked at Colchester United for a, a number of years uh, after I'd finished playing, a couple of years at Chelsea, and then probably most significantly 12 years at the Football Association. I was fortunate to be there at a time when a lot of the sort of changes in player and coach development were recurring in English football. Um, worked as part of a small team, sort of focusing on what kind of coaches we'd like to see coaching in English football, probably more as a premise of the type of players that we'd like to see generated uh, within the game. And hopefully that's brought some success to the country, both in terms of the nature of the players and the way that will hopefully get people out of their seats and hopefully some positive steps towards the type of results that those national teams can garner as well. So that stuff's been really nice to sort of look back on and see some of the progress that the game's made and hopefully having played some small, relatively insignificant role in supporting that. Um, and then across the last three and a half years uh, at Fulham in the role of head of coaching. So again, some, some, you know, some relative progress that we've made, really just trying to help coaches understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and then commit as much as possible to making that as individual as possible, which I guess in my understanding is what a constraints-led approach to coaching is understanding who the individual person is or who the individual people are when they're collectively together and then decide as a consequence how you're going to coach and what sort of things we're going to expose them to as a consequence of understanding who they are and perhaps the things that we might think are important to helping them succeed moving forward. I didn't ask this last time we spoke, Ben, but I'm curious, what, what's your preference? Is it is it coaching the players or is it coach development? Because obviously you, you've got your, you know, you're both closely involved in both with what you write about and what you're doing as your job. But what, what's your preference now? Have you moved towards coaching the coaches, which is your preference, or do you still like being out with the players? I've tried as much as possible to see them as one and the same thing. I guess as much as coach development has grown and many of the positive elements that that's brought to the game, I think the risk has been that coach development can become like a cottage industry where people focus on the coach's needs are these. I want to be the first team coach or I want to get my team to win, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not necessarily bad motivations, but as much as possible, we've tried to nest the development of the coaches inside the needs of the players. Yeah. If you can get really good at supporting that team, those individuals to be able to develop, you can't not develop yourself as a coach and have the adaptable skills to be able to deal with person A on day one and person B on day two, but then also recognise that person A has changed over a period of time as well. Um, I still get a buzz from being out with the players, um, but I guess in many cases, 
when you're in the kind of role that I'm in, trying not to be seen as the person that's trying to be the best coach on the pitch, but trying to support the other coaches to be the best that they can be. And I think there's still some tension between the kind of role as a coach educator, having the having the crown on and being the one that people look at, as opposed to the coach developers being the ones that perhaps blend into the background a little bit, allow the players to be front and centre and allow the coaches to really attend to supporting their needs. I think the final thing we'd probably say is that the more I watch certainly our coaches and I'm sure broad, more broadly coaches develop, the more I watch the depth of understanding they develop about both the players in their care and the way they want those players to, to play, the harder I find it to go and deliver a session because the depth of understanding that they've developed, I parachute myself in for a one-off session. It's usually their worst session of the week. Uh, and in part, that's because you become less practiced than perhaps you were when you were coaching every single day. But also in part, just because those coaches know those players inside out. That's been a lot of time getting to understand them. And that's probably the important bit that we should see coaching as being not here's a session, but this session is nested inside so many other human development factors that bring out what it is that we're doing on any given day. What an interesting way to look at it, because you kind of assume that the, the, you know, the person kind of leading the troops, if you like, when they step into a session, it should be the best one, shouldn't it? Or, you know, the, the one that, that shows the most. But I guess if that is the case, then something's going wrong because you want your coaches that are there on a day-to-day basis with the players to know them well enough to be able to make sure that they're doing it right for them. So what a great way of spinning around looking at it. I guess that's success, right? When it's like that, that's what you want it to be like. Hopefully, and trying to just reverse, I guess, some of the hierarchy, which has typically been in the past, the head of coach and or the coach educator is the person with all of the knowledge. And yeah, I've, I've, you know, hopefully I've got some knowledge and I've got some experience, but that, that's of no value if that can't in some way transcend the people that are working with the players on a day-to-day basis and giving them front and centre the opportunity to guide their own learning and not feel as if there's someone that's in some kind of odd hierarchy that's telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing. We're privileged, Ben, because we've got people like you out there doing wonderful work, wonderful experience, that are putting all the hours and then go to the effort to write books about that that we can then buy and read. Um, I'm curious, though, before we talk about the book itself, how do you keep your powder dry? How do you keep, because you're obviously busy, you know, you're in Fulham, you're working hard. I'm sure you're putting loads of hours in every week. How, how do you get the knowledge to keep kind of almost reinventing your understanding of coaching and stuff so you keep things fresh in, in your mind? I guess I'm really fortunate, um, partly because of my experiences, but just get involved in so many various things. Some of those things just happen informally, like speaking to other heads of coaching, speaking to other coaches across across the world, getting invited to conferences, getting invited to go and share some ideas with people. And I guess as much as possible in the same way that you want the players to be, to try and see every opportunity as exactly that and a moment where you can garner something from somebody else you can test your own uh, ideas you can pick up ideas from other people and uh, I think the more that we can take that approach probably the better Uh, but I guess also what's like even though like the books on their own hopefully they have some value to other people what I've tended to find the more that I've been able to write stuff down is actually it's become a really useful reflective tool for me which is actually you bounce around the things that are in your head and when you've got to try and in some way make it coherent and concise in such a way that somebody else might be able to understand it that's a useful exercise for developing kind of deeper personal clarity about these are the things that are important and this is how I make sense of it and I guess a sort of old adage of if you want to learn something more deeply, try and teach it to other people. Mm. And that's probably been a nice exercise in terms of being able to, I guess, to use your term, keep my powder dry, which is keep thinking about what you're doing and be able to express that in some way to other people. Yeah. And curious to know, I know it's only been 10 months, but 10 months is going to be a long time uh, in football. Um, and I know you're, you're very much a thinker. Anything changed with regards to kind of, th- you know, or anything revolutionary changed in the last 10 months about your approach to, to football or coaching? I think it's been interesting watching as a sort of coronavirus period has 
certainly reduced some of the constraints that people are functioning under. It's been interesting to watch coach development return to something that resembles, I guess, previous normality and just watching some of the ways that that's evolved. It kind of looks a little bit as if we're becoming more central again. Uh, and probably more, this is what you should do on the C license. This is what you should do on the B license. This is what you should do on the A license. Uh, and perhaps becoming a little less individual. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that piece uh, changes over time. Because I guess as much as possible, you want people's formal learning and education to to sit inside the broader things that they're trying to develop and learn. Otherwise, the risk is you spend three days learning something over here that has very little connection to what it is that you're trying to learn every single day of the week and I guess the more closely that we can make those connections for coaches for players this is what I need to succeed in my environment this is how the program sets me up to support me to succeed in my environment probably the better and I think the further we separate people's formal education from the tools that they need to be able to succeed in the real world that's not just in football coach education that's just in broader learning and development probably the worst position we're going to be in and I think the more that we can do to connect those two things and keep them close together probably the better for coaches and players do you think that might be in part a little bit of panic because we felt like we've lost like 18 months or two years of, of time with players and coaching? Is it an overcorrection because we're worried we've lost a bit of control and time so we're trying to fix it maybe by doing the wrong things? It, would that could be that's what a, reason? Yeah. That's a really good way of really good way of looking at it. And I think it kind of still goes back to that idea that the teacher is the person that can correct it and that we've had 18 months or two years of not being able to do any learning. So I better fill them up, fill the pail up with all of this stuff. And if I can fill them up with it and they can repeat it back to me that learning's occurred and just recognize that whatever that period was like, people were still learning. They were just perhaps learning some different stuff or learning in a slightly different way to what they might be doing today. Uh, and yeah, I guess like, like your term is that probably don't need to correct that. We probably just need to take people as they are, meet them where they're at at this moment in time and then decide what we're going to do moving forward. Yeah. I think it's it's a great point. And I, I'm not in the same um, kind of part of football that you're in. The grassroots game is a little bit different, but what we've seen in the grassroots game is I think a bit of panic. I think coaches are panicked and they try to overcorrect. It's become the coaches show again a little bit. And some of the ground we were making up pre-COVID, I think has been lost a little bit. I'm, hopefully we'll get there again and we'll sort things out. But you get a sense of, I'm going to use the word panic on coaches that they've missed out on the time of their players and other play teams are strengthened and we've got to try and strengthen now. So how do we, how do we shortcut that rather than thinking about that long-term development again and yeah. putting the player first, they're making it about themselves. Best intentions, not, you know, not, 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 you know, not, yeah. not because they necessarily want to do that just because they think that's the right solution to the problem. And I think it's quite short-term missing. It's not thinking about the long-term. And like you said, it becomes a little bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? And then yeah. it almost kind of perpetuates that I behave like that today to get what I think I need to get. And then hence I have to behave like that tomorrow and the day after. And before yeah. I know it, I've adapted to needing to coach like that to feel like I'm having any kind of impact. Yeah, 100%. Okay, well, look, just before we go on to the, on to the, the latest book that you promised you weren't going to write, but you've done. Um, but let's flash back to the previous book. So Constraining Football, which I love. I have on, on me now. I keep it with it all the time because it's a reference tool for me. I'm always in and out of that book because I think it's fantastic. Um, so for those that haven't had the opportunity to pick it up or look at it yet, just a little bit about the first book that you, you wrote, kind of why did you write it and, and what, what's involved with it? Yeah, no, thank you for saying. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess in some senses there's been... I guess a lot of people, you know, academics call it kind of ecological dynamics or dynamic systems theory. There's been a lot of theoretical stuff written about human development and learning uh, and like a constraints-led approach to coaching hasn't been particularly well promoted from like a genuine practice perspective. 
which becomes hard in itself because as soon as you adopt a constraints-led approach or start to think about it, the recognition is, is that it's different every single time. It will be unique to the context. It's how do you write a book to tell someone how to do it if you're not immersed in their context? And I guess that was kind of like the challenge of the first book, which is how do you enable people to come to understand what's important in their context and then decide how to coach uh, as a consequence and almost as possible providing some kind of backdrop of the type of ingredients that we can use in our coaching sessions and mix infinitely to guide people towards the type of solutions that are going to be most relevant to their context. So rather than saying this is the practice for day one, these are some of the things that you might want to consider if these things are important to you. And as a consequence, you hopefully is sort of the give a man a, or a woman a fish and they'll feed themselves for the day, teach them how to fish and they'll feed themselves for a lifetime. Probably overstated, overused, cliche, but that element that if you just say to people, well, you decide what's important, that's probably an overreach, particularly for those that perhaps haven't got loads of experience or don't feel particularly confident about doing that at this moment in time, but provide them with a set of tools that hopefully enable them to build stuff, reflect on it, and then evolve it across time is perhaps the way that we want to think about the book. Um, and hopefully the, you know, it's, 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 done, it's been really successful in terms of the amount of copies that it sold, but I guess it was never necessarily about how many you sell, more about the impact that it has. And I think the feedback that we've had on the book has been really positive in that in most cases, the feedback that we've had is that people have interpreted it and understood it in the way that we hoped it would be interpreted and understood, which is always really difficult when you put a, an inanimate object out there that people will yeah. always interpret in their own way to say, how is this going to land? Will people hate it? Will people like it? But more importantly, will people understand its intentions? And in almost every instance, people have understood its intentions, which is, yeah, it's been great feedback for us. Well, I've never written a book. I've never had a baby. But I can imagine it's pretty similar along the lines where if you had one kid, you'd probably say, I'll never have one again after the first week or two. But actually, as time settles down and you learn to love it, you think, actually, maybe I can go again. And you have done. So you've, you've got your second book out now. Um like I say, I, I have had a look through over the weekend and like, again, it's one of those books when you start looking at it, you, you just literally I jump from chapter to chapter because I want to know what's going on next and what the next bit's going to cover. So, um, but can you tell us a bit about, okay, why you've written the second book um, and the concept behind it before we actually look at the book itself, kind of just, just what your thoughts are, why you think it's important to put that out there and what kind of where it came from? I think sort of reflecting back on the first book, it was relatively abstract and quite broad in terms of its coverage. I guess in many senses, it was trying to kind of introduce from a football coaching perspective, the notion of a constraints-led approach to coaching and support coaches to navigate some of those broad principles. And I guess on looking back at it, it probably felt as if it didn't necessarily develop the depth that perhaps would have supported people beyond the, the book itself, which I guess is where the second book has come from. Um, and because... I guess if, if the first book is seen as, if Constraining Football is seen as a prequel to this book, which is the hope that they're kind of seen as a, a two-book package that go together, then one hopefully quite nicely feeds into the other. And whilst the first one spoke quite broadly about a vision for player and coach development, this speaks more about the craft of player development and hopefully starts to help coaches understand the type of club that they are and then as a consequence how they may coach and more broadly play the game of football to support those things to play out in practice. Um, certainly looking back on it, there's more practice examples in there. There's more talk about football coaching practice, football game day, what sort of tactics we're going to adopt and how those things play out. And certainly there was in the first book, which hopefully just means if the first book had a lot of breadth to it, the second book hopefully has got more depth to it. And hopefully if you take those two things together, they can connect fairly nicely. 
it feels like an evolution of the first book where you get in some of the detail and you can you can join the dots up a little bit by looking through the second book and and having that maybe deeper understanding about some of the topics that are covered that's what it felt like to me looking at over at the at the weekend so the book's called connected coaching and the craft of player development are you happy for us to kind of look through chapter by chapter, just a little kind of summary and your thoughts around it? We don't want to give everything away, obviously. We want to whet the appetite for people that are listening, but just to, to, so people can get an idea about, okay, when they get the book, what they can expect to kind of get through each of the sections. Because although they all work together, they're also a little bit different, aren't they? You know, each one. So each one covers a key area of kind of the whole world of, of, of player development. So as I see it, there's there's the eight chapters. And I think the first one we've got is what kind of club are we? Yeah, um, the, the the intention is there's, there's more chapters in this book than there was in the first one and that it hopefully starts relatively light and quite speedy and when you get to sort of chapter five, you start to, the chapters become longer, they become a little bit more technical, there's hopefully a little bit more depth in there, uh, which I guess hopefully comes as a consequence of considering some of the things that precede it. Uh, chapter one just speaks about what kind of a club are we, and just asks coaches, chairmen, secretaries, parents, hopefully players, to talk about what things are important to people. Um, and I guess the sort of idea for this chapter came as a consequence of spending some time with a semi-professional football club who were almost going through this whole process of deciding what club are we. Uh, and there were, interestingly, two coaches who were really open uh, that spoke about their under-12 team and said they'd had a couple of players that had um, come from a, a rival team that had started playing with them. They wanted to sign them and... Uh, they'd lost a couple of games, this team, because they'd won early in the season and been seeded according to their relative success early in the season and were starting to lose some games. And the parents of these new players said, well, we think you should coach the team. We think you should select the team. We think you should behave more broadly in a way that will help us to win more matches. And both of these coaches are kind of like, yeah, but that's not the sort of club we are. And when they raised that point with the parents, the parents came back at them and said, well, what sort of club are you? And they, even though they had a sense of what was important to them, they couldn't actually articulate in any coherent way to say, well, this is the type of club we are, hence these are the way that we're going to behave. And that club's going on a long journey now of like understanding what type of club they are so that the next time those coaches get questioned, they've got some kind of answer. They can promote that at the outset, but those players come in just to have some real clarity about the things that are important. And hopefully by determining what kind of club we are, once you've got some sense of what that is, hopefully that just feeds into every other interaction and piece of work that you ever might do with and um, for the players. And how important is it is to have clarity around that? Because I think, I would imagine that if you ask most clubs, they would say, yeah, yeah, we know what our philosophy is, know what we want to try and do. But actually, like you say, when you ask them, okay, we'll summarise it in a sentence or two then, and they might struggle. But also if you ask one person, you might get a slightly different answer to somebody else's response. So they think they might know what they're trying to achieve. But actually, it's the devil in the detail there. And having that real kind of clarity around it, or the more clear you can be around what you're trying to achieve as a club or a group, how much is that going to help the rest of what you do afterwards? Yeah, 100%. And as much as, I mean, this is a big club, which is hard. You know, you kind of got yeah. clubs like across the country and across the world that have got 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 teams in some cases. Um, and the notion that often they can be 30 teams that are operating quite differently, even though they form the constituent part of the same club. So that's fundamentally hard. But I guess what you probably need is leadership embodying those things that are important, particularly when the temperature's dialed up, when things get a little bit more difficult, things get a little bit hotter, because that's probably the test of what we think is important. And I guess also probably that element of not necessarily being able to say what's important so everybody says exactly the same words, 
but being able to say what's important is that everybody's sort of comprehending the same principles. And even though people may naturally will interpret it and perhaps it communicate it in slightly different ways, principally it's underpinned by the things that are important that are played out in every single interaction that we have. So it becomes less about needing to say it and more about the fact that we're just living it. Yeah. And by this, you don't just mean, I, I'm not sure you mean at all, actually, like the technical, tactical stuff, you're talking more philosophically, okay, what is our objective as, as, a, as an organisation here? What do we, what, how do we approach things and, what, and what's kind of the way we, you know, we, we, what are our core values, I guess? You, that's as important there to the, the actual stuff that go, plays out on the grass, right? 100%. Yeah what, yeah, what are we here for? And I guess in every sense, the sort of technical and tactical stuff should probably come as a consequence of knowing what we're here for. Uh, if we're if we're here to give as many players as broad an experience of football as possible, that may be that may be a different approach to the way that we interact with the players and parents than picking a relatively small group of perhaps early developed players who are going to win lots of games for us. And they're not good or bad. That's not a dichotomy. This is right. This is wrong. That's good. That's bad. But knowing what you're there for, being able to ex- explicitly explain to people what you're there for, and then making sure you embody it in every single thing that you do. Superb. Okay, chapter two. Can we go on to that one? Is that all right? Yeah, two and three are probably connected. They sort of talk about the, the value judgments that any of us make, which hopefully come as a consequence of the type of club that we are. Um, chapter two talks more kind of about the moral value judgments that we make, so principally what things underpin how we select the team. And it pr- largely uses uh, uh, the sort of idea of team selection on a game day to underpin what it is that we, we value and why we value it. So do some players start more games than others? Do some players sit on the bench and play less minutes than others? And if so, why is that? Do some people play in more uh, important or perceived to be more important positions than other people? Do some players play more in cup games and in important league games than other players play? And if so, why are we making those decisions? It sort of talks, hopefully talks to the idea of sort of broad senses of understanding maturity those that are physically early to develop, those that are socially better with their peers and or with the adults often get greater advantage and then it becomes almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Those that get more opportunity become better as a consequence and those that get less get less as a consequence. And that's all as coaches being able to hold our nerve and particularly in youth development, recognising that the, the, the race isn't run by 13 or 14, assuming the race is ever run. And those that we perhaps think are good at any moment in time might not necessarily be the best ones in the future and vice versa. Although the risk is is we can almost fulfil that by making particular decisions, which is allowing some players to get more opportunity than others, which means the ones that we said were always going to be best, guess what? They are the best, only by virtue of the fact that we give them greater opportunity. Um, so the second chapter talks about sort of your value judgments and how that plays out in team selection in any given day. And then chapter three talks more about sort of tactical alignment, about the value judgments that we make about the way that we want to play. This was kind of a nice reflective piece from a personal perspective, just about some of the coaches that I've worked with across time. And probably from a tactical perspective, the ones that have developed the greater sense of individuals within the team have been ones that have looked more at broad solutions to problems rather than specific patterned convergent solutions. Um, and, and it sort of takes us through... Uh, a team that I've had some, I've been fortunate to spend some time supporting where rather than saying the opposition are going to play 4 4 2, this is how we play, or the opposition are going to play 4 3 3, this is how we play, I've supported the players to develop broad solutions about if the opposition press with one, these are some of the ways that we might build up press with two, press with three, press with four or five. Similarly, if we're pressing with one, these might be some of the solutions to the problem. And it was a really nice example of a game which was played in some pretty horrendous, changeable conditions where the opposition started pressing with a one, 
and the players had some solutions that they fell on about switching the ball between the centre-backs to try and run the legs off of the centre-forward. As they tried to do that, the opposition released a second midfield a midfield player, so a second player coming into the press, pressing with two, at which point as the one releases, the space in midfield, full-backs have gone higher, which opens up some space in between the lines. Uh, and then this team was 3-0 up at half-time and the opposition shift, shifted sorry, to a 3-5-2, pressed with three, and then often the wing-backs release in certain times, pressing with four and five. And in those instances, the opportunities were for the full-backs to drop deeper, for the centre-backs and the goalkeepers to come close together and move the ball centrally to open space wide, to draw players on to then play passes further up the pitch. And in no moment did the coaches from the sideline say to the players, this is what you should do, because the training programme had embodied when they press with one, when they press with two, when they press with three, when they press with four. These are some of the solutions. The players adapted in the moment and played out those solutions. And... This was a pretty acute example of where, because the opposition changed their approach three times in the same game, you could see those things play out almost. But when that happens, we do that. When that happens, we do that. When that happens, we do that. And it was a really nice evolution of my mind from the kind of traditional analysis where, I don't know, Manchester United are going to play Chelsea and Chelsea are going to play like this. So these are our solutions. And all of a sudden, Chelsea changed what they're doing and the players like go, oh, what do we do now? It's kind of like, well, whatever the opposition do, we've got some solutions. And whilst we might not always succeed, we're actually adapting our tactics in the moment. I think at times, though, the sort of idea that the players have the solutions can just mean that we throw the ball in and absolve ourselves of responsibility. And what these coaches have done really well is they built the capacity in the players to understand these things, to practice it, so that in the moment when the temperature's up, they fall on the solutions because they're well-practiced, but they own them. They've been introduced and developed by the coaches, but the players own the solutions in the moment rather than wait for the coach to tell them what to do. Um, and I guess in every sense, there's kind of that element that if we want adaptable players, we probably need to coach and develop them in such a way that supports those things to play out in practice and to hold our nerve to think, oh, the opposition are changing. And as soon as the coach intervenes and starts doing X, Y, and Z, the risk is, is that we steal that opportunity from the players to solve the problem in the moment. I think it's about, that sounds about like creating problem solvers, doesn't it? You want to create problem solvers, or you're sorry, not create, most wrong word, but you want to encourage players to be able to solve problems in the moment, right? And if you don't allow them to do that, practice that, then how do they get good at it? That's the thing. And it sounds like the coach did a wonderful job there prior to the game, right? Not in not on game day or the week before. I'm sure this is months of work before the games, if not years, to get to that situation. But I, I think the comment you make is so true around what we want to try and do as coaches sometimes is fix the problem, don't we, straight away, especially in a match because we panic, right? But the minute we then make a move or a suggestion is the danger we stop the players from thinking because now it's like, actually, right, the coach taken over so we can almost, not not even consciously, but the, the, the pressure to stop thinking from the players, then it's just, right, let the coach instruct down what to do. And as soon as it gets that situation, you're kind of in a bit of a pickle, aren't you? Because it is that's when the coach is kind of making it about them rather than the players and you're not playing the game, they are. 100%. And I guess that's a bit about tactics more broadly, which is it's a game for players played by players. It doesn't just mean that we throw them out there and watch them see whether they can swim or not. We've provided them with some resources that support them to be able to play. And I think what's really good in those moments is even though the result the result played out really well, they won that game by five goals. Um, perhaps belief for some people comes as a consequence of a positive outcome. It's just then an opportunity to reinforce, look, we've yeah. been working, this is really important and here's the outcome. We haven't necessarily won the game because of these things, but almost the element of belief that comes from people like, uh, we've invested this energy, we haven't always understood exactly where we're going, but when it plays out really positive in those moments, they're the points where you can really ram it home and hopefully reinforce some of those principles to hold even greater value moving forward. 
And that's why you call it a craft, right? Because it is a craft, isn't it? It's not a science. It's a craft. It's about balancing a few things together. And you are right. And I think this is a mistake we have to make in the grassroots game is we we put too much value on the scoreline and the result as a result in itself. Or actually, to me, I want the result to be positive every single time my team plays a game of football. Of course I do. But because it supports the process we're going through, not because it's about winning the game. It's about saying, actually, now it gives you belief in the process we're doing. And it doesn't always work out that way. But the more times you get the result, it's it's, it's t- it it almost justifies the process you're going through. And sometimes it's asking the players to do more things themselves than you might want to do if you're a coach because you can step in and help. But actually by not doing that, you know, you, you, you're giving them that better long-term development. 100%. Okay. Uh, so is that three and, uh, sorry, is that two and three covered there then? Is that, it is? Correct, yeah. yeah. Um, so now we're going to go on to chapter four, which is tactical concepts. Yeah, and four and five again, hopefully are connected and, Tactical four, just sorry, chapter four from a tactical concept perspective talks about how we can transform some of the things that we spoke about in chapter three into critical coaching principles. And uh, I was fortunate, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago now to get asked to go to Leinster, uh, to the rugby club, to sort of speak with them about a constraint-led approach to coaching and uh, spent a, a day with 50 southern irish rugby coaches you probably <laughs> wondered who's this soft bloke from london that's come across to try and teach us about coaching i bet you fit uh, in perfectly ben and, uh, <laughs> and worked with uh, worked with their under 16s players um and having not really i didn't really know a great deal about rugby nor do i still to this moment in time but got out there spent some time with the coaches spent some time with the coach that worked with those players spent a little bit of time with the players talking about you know what's important to you how do you look to play and the coach who was a fairly gruff sort of ex-professional but really cared about the kids said well, we're practicing carrying it in our hands because I don't want them kicking it because I don't want them kicking it until they can carry it. Uh, and I was like, okay, fine. That's that sort of dichotomy was something that I guess I've been trying to challenge over a number of years. And I said, okay, do you mind if we do both? Um, so we ran a, a rug. I, I ran a rugby practice with this group of twenty under sixteens, and we played on a very narrow pitch. It was about fifteen yards wide and about fifty yards long, and we played ten versus ten. Um, and in that ten versus ten, it was re- uh, you get six points for a for a drop goal. Um, you get, and six points if it's scored from outside the um, the 22. Uh, you get four points for a drop goal at any other point and you get two points from a try. So you're almost reversing the kind of scoring system in natural rugby, which is more points for running it over the line than you get for kicking it. And just the idea that if you want to see some more of something, probably reward it more greatly than it would be rewarded, rewarded naturally. Uh, with the idea being that we wanted them to practice carrying it, but we also wanted them to practice kicking it at times as well. So because the pitch was so narrow, and you had 10 players stretched across that 15 yards. There wasn't much space to run between people. So the players would pick it up, run a couple of yards, get tackled, go down, get up, go again. And after about five or six minutes, you can see the players go, I can't do this all day. I can't do this for an hour because it's going to break us. So guess what they did? They started to kick it. They kicked over to kick for touch to get a better field position or they kicked over to chase. The more they kicked over, guess what the opposition did? Dropped some players back to defend the space, which opened up some gaps between people to run. Um, so as a consequence, you ended up with this really nice game of cat and mouse, which is recognise when to kick, recognise when to carry, um, but recognising that the more point, the, the more you kicked it over the post, the more points you got as a consequence, um, which hopefully meant that the players had to work out when to do what rather than just arbitrarily carrying it or arbitrarily kicking it because somebody said that might be important. Um, the more that the game played out over time, the more it became really heated towards the last game, which was a decider. Um, and the game had been set up such that even though the pitch was 50 yards long, 
you only scored at the end of the pitch where the rugby posts were. So if you worked up to the halfway line, you had to turn around and then attack the posts. So you effectively had to go not just the 50 yards to score, you had to go 100 yards to be able to score because you could only score where the posts were. So the game ended with these group of players travelling up to the halfway line, touching down over the line, working back and then scoring a six-point drop goal from outside the 22 to win the game. Um, what was really nice is about six weeks later, uh, Irish rugby won the Six Nations that year. I think it was a 41-staged um, attack where they kept going, kept going, kept going. And Johnny Sexton kicked a 45-yard drop goal to win the game against France that won them the Six Nations, which was obviously as a consequence of the training session that we did at Leinster that day. <laughs> um, but uh, we, 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 we ran the session in that way. And because I had no rugby-specific knowledge, it was 50 coaches that were there watching. They were the ones that were interacting with the kids. So not only trying to influence the kids around the way that they play, but also involving the coaches so heavily in, in terms of what's going on in that particular session, influencing them about what things the kids are seeing and whether or not those things might have value over time. What's so great about that story, I think, is the fact that sometimes I think we get lost in the world. That if you want to be a football coach, you've got to know football inside out and upside down. And you just prove that's not the case, right? What you've got to really understand is quite player development, you know, and how you can use games and you can use coaching um, pedagogy, I guess, to, to, to bring out the things that you need. It's, you don't need to understand the sport necessarily. It's understanding education, learning and those things that are more important, right? And you demonstrated that by doing the trip to Leinster. And, that, and that, I guess that was, the, the, I guess, the sort of long-winded way of getting to the point about tactical concepts, which is the game has got a set of laws and rules that dictate what you can or can't do. They should probably be the things that constrain you and as much as possible support the players to develop as many solutions as they can. Be clear what those solutions are because Chapter 5 then talks about tactical coaching is you've decided on your concepts, how do you now then go about ensuring that in every single interaction you interweave the things that are important to the way you want to play into a constraints-led approach to coaching practice. So we're not just picking, I've got this practice that I saw Scott do that I really like, so I'm going to do it today. But we've got a whole collection of practices that come as a consequence of deciding how it is that we want to play in the example that we use in Chapter 4 Rugby, but more broadly across the book about football. And I guess the challenge then is to be able to balance those games and that constraint that approach then with when you drop in the actual coaching technical points, right? Because like what you wouldn't be able to do when you went up to help with the rugby guys is probably stepping in and, and, and do the individual correction of technical points, I guess, to their game, which is absolutely fine, right? That's what you want the coach to do at certain stages. But you, that's not the priority here, is it? The priority is getting games going, getting learning happening and knowing when to drop that stuff in, I guess. And like, like, like you said there, like the coaches at Leinster knew the players at Leinster. That was the first yeah. time I've met those players. And I guess the sort of adage about a connection before correction, those coaches knew those players. They knew rugby miles better than I'll ever know it. Uh, and also, hopefully in those instances, the coaches stop worrying about what the practice looks like and they actually start looking at the players playing in the practice and then work out how they get in on asking some questions about it. And like you said, maybe correct them if that's the right thing to be able to do. Um, we played three games, I think, of about 17 and 18 minutes, which has got kind of like some physical, some psychological and some social elements to it, which is you're not going to stop for 17 or 18 minutes. You need to find ways to stick in the game to keep at things when they're perhaps not going very well. And also means that the coaches use their moment after those 17, 18 minutes to use their time optimally. I think at times when we stop it every minute, when we stop it every two minutes, you just end up with coaches being on top rather than coaches spending their time watching the players to decide what things they're going to do to support the players to be on top. 
and watching them do things that are actually realistic to the game, right? Actually things that will transfer into the match day experience that are watching them in the best way possible, see what really will make a difference. So it's not a, a false economy. You're not watching something that's kind of too manufactured and not realistic and trying to correct things that actually probably don't need correcting on a match day. Just to get it right, because I'm not that I mean I, I don't follow rugby that well. I know a bit about it. So you that was on half a pitch, essentially. You were going up one end and working back to the the, the try line the other way, which again was is that because the constraints of the actual very area you had to train rather than playing the whole pitch, or was that just how the game you wanted the game to work? Yeah, more the second one. We did have the whole of the pitch, but because we wanted the kicking to be really purposeful and really detailed when they did it, if you give them a hundred yards of space to kick the ball into, there's less precision required on yes. that kick. Yeah. Um, if you give them only 30, 40 or 50 yards in which to be able to kick into, they've got to get that right on point and pick the moments. And I guess that sort of element that if you plan an area that in some ways is perceived to be tighter than others, then the detail that is required is, is I guess, greater in some senses. However, sometimes when the pitch is short, it means you get loads and loads of goals as a consequence of the fact that everybody's on top of the goal all of the time. By saying get to the halfway line and turn, you've still effectively got to go the full length of a rugby pitch but you're actually constrained by the amount of space that you've got to work in in any given moment. And I don't know if you know, Ben, but have they, have they ever done something like that before? Would you know? Or you, or I guess you do you know? Or was not, that new not, to them? Not to my knowledge. I think they've played no. games and stuff before, but yeah. I think this was probably quite extreme in that sense, yeah. And uh, you'll probably be painfully bashful about this one, but I don't know if you know either. Engagement-wise, did you get any feedback with regards to how that session compared to other sessions? I mean, did they enjoy it more? And please be honest, because my gut feeling is that no no disrespect to the coaches that are there. I'm sure they're doing a wonderful job, but that just sounds like fun and it sounds like playing the game a lot, um, which maybe they do every week anyway. But did, was the engagement high? Did you get nice feedback from that particular session? The feedback's really good. Um and like the, the, the guys that had organised it did a nice exercise with the players at the end to draw feedback from them in a range of different ways. And I guess in some sense, there's a sort of novelty of having someone else come and deliver the session. You've got 50 of the coaches there, some of whom work with the first team. Those things, in my experience, are always really good for engagement. A novel coach that you've never seen before, loads of people watching you. Yeah. Uh, the second bit's probably more of a driver for engagement than any nonsense that I was coaching them. Um, and, and I think that's probably an important thing to consider around experience which is the more that we can add novelty to as many of the experiences as possible probably the more likely we are to catch people's attention that doesn't mean we should just like turn up like a circus clown with a, a spinning a spinning bow tie and a flower that um, squirts water but we probably should think about how we engage and generate novelty for people because novelty seems to be a really good way of affecting emotions and emotions seem to be a really good connection to learning so the more that people can feel there's some novelty and stuff the more it connects to the way they feel about stuff more engaged they are likely to be in as a consequence hopefully learn some of the benefits from that experience and then on to chapter six uh seamless not separatist coaching the whole person parts one and two yeah try to sort of do a range of things here to sort of do what the chapter said it was going to do which is not coach across the four corners in a separated way and i guess the four corners have been really good for helping people to consider the whole of the person but perhaps at times have been interpret interpreted to mean I'm going to coach the technical part on Monday, the physical part on Tuesday and the psychological part on Wednesday. Uh, and curriculums can then be separated, both curriculums for players and curriculum for coaches can be separated to say on these two days, you're going to learn this part of the syllabus. And on these two days, you're going to learn that part of the syllabus, which I guess in many senses was stolen from school, which is you go into an English lesson for an hour and then the bell rings and you go to science with a different teacher and, Whilst I'm sure school has been fantastic for many things, I think we need to be really careful about lifting stuff from school and planning it into sport because contexts are quite different for loads of different reasons. So part one explores sort of smaller numbered practices 
as a means of trying to recognise that the decisions that we make in our practice can influence every single part of our being without them needing to be separated. Uh, part two looks at larger number of practices, but what the chapters sought to do is to keep the principles that were embedded from chapter three about that tactical alignment. How is it that we want to play? What things underpin the way we want to play? So whenever we're doing smaller numbered, be it 3v3, 4v4, 5v4, and when we're doing larger numbered, be it 8v8, 9v9, 10v9, 11v11 practices, those principles are still embedded. If we go big pitch, if we go small pitch, if we go high levels of competition, if we go high, high levels of team interaction, hopefully we're impacting upon everybody's being at the same time. And as much as possible, trying to consider the whole of the person being educated rather than the parts of the person being educated. And I guess sort of final part to say on this would be also trying to push back a little bit at some of the kind of conventional dogma that still underpins the way that we think about learning, which is, uh, I remember when I worked for a particular organisation, one of the big leaders was talking about Adam Smith, who um, was one of the first industrialists that separated stuff, so the division of labour. So it was to do with making pins. These people will do the marketing. These people will do the production. These people will do the packaging. Um, and people have started to use those kind of analogies in sport, which means Scott will do the psych stuff, Ben will do the football stuff, somebody else will do the physical stuff. And, yeah, we want probably different experts who come with different expertise to be able to contribute to the player's development. But as much as possible, we need to build experiences that connect those things because the risk is we separate it and we say that will happen over there, that will happen over there, and we strip parts of a human being apart, stitch them all back together in the hope that it will be the same hole it was when we pulled it apart, yeah. which it isn't. Uh, and as much as possible, building practice that reflects all of those things um, rather than separating it into individual parts which different people have responsibility for. And then this one's really interesting to me because actually, again, sometimes just things drop at the right time. And we were internally in the club that I support with. We've been talking about what we measure and value and, and what's important. There's been a little bit of uh, uh, comfortable but disagreement around what we think is important. So there's been some really great work done. Some coaches that I, I know very well who are good people around measuring things like goals and assists and this kind of stuff. And I've kind of challenged back and said, "Oh, hold on a minute, it's great, but are we looking? Are we looking at the right things there? Because these are outcomes, and actually, what do we really value? What's the process?" So, chapter seven, you've got measure what we value, don't value what we can measure. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, and again, probably informed by some of my own experience, where things like XG. Things like acute chronic workload ratio, which are almost like machine learning algorithms where we throw a number of data points into a machine and it gives us one number to tell us whether or not we should have won the game, lost the game, or whether a player is more or less likely to get injured. Uh, and whilst I understand there are many practitioners out there that understand the risk of those kind of algorithms, the risk is, is that you almost become a comparative that my team plays your team, your XG was higher than mine, you lost the game, hence you've been unfairly treated just because of some number that we managed to come up with. Um, and that in many senses, the data points that we use are A, universal, so everybody's measured against the same data points, and are B, comparative, we compare what I'm doing relative to what you're doing, even though you and I might be trying to achieve completely different things. Uh, and as much as possible, just trying to guide people to consider what is it uh, at the outset that you said, what kind of club it is that you are or you, that you want to be? How do you then measure to see whether or not what the type of club you said you wanted to be is actually plan out in practice? Uh, second bit would probably be to say that trying to see measuring as more than data, that you could get five of these and three of those or 74% of this or 27% of that. 
yeah, those things can be helpful to help us perhaps more objectify certain elements. But we should be really careful about objectifying a game that is very difficult to always put numbers on to determine whether it was right or wrong, good or bad, successful or less so. Um, and again, it sort of returns back to a sort of chapter three about how we want to play and as a consequence, finding measures that align with the ways that we play. But then more importantly, seeing measuring as reviewing games back, reviewing chaining sessions back, analysing in a more broader sense when we choose to press and the opposition have certain players or plan a particular system or adopt particular tactics, what is it that makes it hard for us? So that the broader analysis and measurement of what we're doing guides the evolutions that we make to the programme moving forward, which is why the things kind of sit together. Because if we've already got a predefined syllabus that says we're doing this in three weeks' time, it makes it really difficult for our analysis to guide what happens next. Because what we need to be able to say is these principles underpin what we're doing. These are some of the concepts that shape the way that we coach it. And then as we analyze over time, we use those reflections, that analysis, that data to hopefully shape some of what we might do tomorrow, next week, the week after. So it's a continual adaptation response to all of the things that are going on. Um, the third and final thing to probably say is it explores data from a football perspective and talks about sort, sort of pressing data, pressing analysis and possession. But then the second part kind of gets into analysing to some extent our own coach behaviour. And I guess many sort of academic institutions have been really committed to measuring coaching, but and often, uh, oftentimes it's been comparative and it's been everybody measured against the same. And it just uses a personal reflection tool that I use uh, to kind of think about my own practices. And it's got nine questions in it about did the practice have offside? How big was the area? Did it use goals? How uh, individualised were your coaching interactions? Which isn't necessarily about it was this or it was that, but more an opportunity to be able to say, I haven't used offside very much in my practices. It's very, very difficult for me then to talk to the players about timing of runs. Yeah. Uh, I haven't had goalkeepers and goals in many of the practice. Hence, it's very difficult for me to talk with the players about finishing. Um, my practices, when they're larger numbered, haven't been very individual focused. Hence, it's very difficult for me to talk about the way that I've interacted with the individuals as a consequence. And probably across time, just been able to track do I have particular trends or preferences that are more eminent in my coaching practice, some of which I might be wholly aware of and consciously commit to, some which might just be blind spots. I didn't even know that I did. Um, and because it's a self-reflective tool, it isn't as if you've got to show it to someone to be criticised for whether or not what you did was right or wrong. It's almost an opportunity just to explore your own practice and see whether or not what you want to do is actually what you're doing on, a, on an individual basis. And you can hopefully be as much as any of us can be. You can be the, as, as honest with yourself as necessary you haven't got to show it to someone no one's going to assess you against whether you did what you said you were going to do it's just a self-assessment to see whether or not you're doing what you said was going to be important with the players a great checklist and i guess one thing we're probably all a bit conscious uh, uh, guilty of sometimes is a bit of unconscious bias right where we just you know you just do things you don't know you're doing it because you just get in habits of doing things that we all have so having a check a reference list that we can go back to and just check ourselves um it's definitely a tool worth having Fantastic. Okay. And then finally, chapter eight, the map is not the territory. Yeah, which is hopefully just a, a personal rallying call to the stuff that we spoke about at the beginning about sort of predefined coach education and player development programs that have already decided what people are going to get and then just pump people full of it. Um, the map of the curriculum is is not the territory because we can have drawn the map out. But then when people start exploring the territory, they may see or find different things that we didn't see when we were looking at the same particular land. And being really careful about curriculum maps that say on block one of this course, you're going to do this, this and this. On week one of the player development curriculum, you're going to do this, this and that. 
because you can map it out and have somewhat might be perceived to be certainty about how that's going to help the players. But actually, when people explore the actual territory, as opposed to looking at the map, it may be that they come across some challenges that we need to support them with, rather than only being guided what the map tells us. And as much as possible, it just encourages people and coaches to see the players that are in front of them, align it with the things that they said were important about the type of club that we want to be in as a conscious consequence, then decide how to coach. And then evolve that from session to session, from week to week, to revisit some stuff to ensure learning connects, but also to move it along so that the players feel as if their learning is evolving in response to all of the challenges that they're facing come game day. And how important is it to reflect on this and make changes when, when things are maybe not quite right? Because obviously one thing affects another, doesn't it? Like you said, there's a continuity here. So if we got something quite wrong, maybe at the beginning here, with our judgment values or our tactical align, whatever it might be, and would your advice be like okay that's not right then go back and fix that and then and, and review it again don't just don't just run on there right? <laughs> yeah reflect and review and make change if you need to 100 percent. and i guess that's the kind of the idea about not being too wed to the map uh i guess you've got to have some sense like the kind of club that we are about the things that are important to you and to commit to some stuff but not be wed to it to the point that you can't ever change it or adapt it and i guess it's like you alluded to there being held together by some things that we've agreed are important but other than that, everything else changes. Repeat the principles that are important to you, but change your tactics, adapt your processes, change your training sessions as much as possible as a consequence of the feedback that you generate internally, but equally as important the feedback that are generated from the players and parents that uh, I guess are critical to your environment. What I love about the book, Ben, is same. I think the same as the first book is what it does. It provides almost like a framework, so it doesn't tell anyone what they should and shouldn't do. It's just picking up key topics and getting you thinking about ideas and concepts that you can embed in any way that you feel that's right for you, your club, your players, your team. And I love that. I think you know you're not saying what's why and what's wrong. It's not a don't do do book. It's a, hey, these are things to think about and have that continuity and that consistency, and then you see what plays out in practice after that which is fantastic um i would certainly be using the, the book i use the first one loads already i'll be building the second one but who have you aimed the book for what would you say is the is the right audience for the book um probably coaches that want to consider what's important in their environment and then commit to some stuff and evolve it over time um and i guess as much as possible like you alluded to it's trying to provide enough tentative solutions to people that feel as if they're not bereft but at the same time, not provide them with the hard and fast. When you're presented with X, you do Y. And I guess that's kind of that interminable tension between giving people enough sort of substance and perceived certainty to move forward, but not giving them a script that tells them this is what you do for fear of it not necessarily being transferable across every single environment. So you'd hope coaches that think, um, but in most of my experiences, most coaches think, most people that whether they're volunteering or whether they're getting paid to do it, most people care about the people that are in their care, wanted to, to do the best by them as they can within our own personal resource. Uh, and hopefully this just supports any coach to think about what they do, why they do it, and hopefully adapt it a little bit over time. 100%. Good. Fantastic. Well, when is it available and where can people get it? Um, pre-orders are open now so it went on it was released on Friday to pre-orders um, which can be done on the soccercoachweekly.net website um, the actual printed um, copies will go out on the 7th of November so uh, that's when they actually uh, go out live uh, anybody that, that um, is engaged by such things will get a signed copy if they pre-order it and get access to a webinar just to talk about the book as a consequence. So um, certainly this time last year, when we were doing the first book, we were under a little bit of a 
under a little bit of pressure to uh, get things where we wanted them to be. Whereas this year we've had a better run at it. We're probably in a better position in terms of being able to get stuff out there and hopefully promote it in a positive way. Well, I think it'll make a fantastic Christmas present if you don't want to get it before Christmas. So well done. Look, um, we're often asked on the podcast to, to, you know, to promote books, if you like, or talk about books and that. And I don't always say yes, I don't, because I don't necessarily always buy into it myself. I think if I'm not going to read it, then it's not right to talk about it. Um, I have absolutely no qualms whatsoever, Ben, in talking about this book and your previous books, because I genuinely think in the, in the, the first one I know inside out is fantastic. This one I've had a brief look at, but it's already got me desperate to look at it in, in more detail and that'd be fantastic again um and the reason i say it is because it's helped me help my players you know and, and that's what this is all about isn't it doing what we can to support the player development and anything that can support that i'm always going to shout about so um we'll put all the links or uh, in the show notes to where we can get the book from um so people can find that easy as well as as well as you so thanks so much for talking us through it well done for doing the second one because you said you weren't going to do it so well done so we'll have you on about six months for the third i'm assuming right it's absolutely not going to be a third book. <laughs> thank, um, thank you. Thank you for your support again, Scott. It's appreciated. Ben, it's no problem at all. You do wonderful work. And like I say, it's people like you that help us, you know, give our players a better journey. And without you, it wouldn't be the same. So, you know, it's um, it, it's really very much appreciated. Um, I've got two final questions. If, you, if that's okay. Of course yeah. it is. Just keen to know because of where you are and what you're doing. I know you're, you're a proper think about the game of, of football and coach development, player development. Anything you you see kind of lying ahead in the next five to 10 years that might be changing or do you think we're on the right track as it is and it's just kind of keeping working through what we're doing? I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not we do keep doing what we're doing. Uh, I guess sort of across governance of the game nationally and internationally, when you get leadership changes, you can often get philosophical changes. And I guess it's recognising if we are having a period of success, the things that have probably contributed to that success from a range of different perspectives and in some senses holding our nerve and evolving those things rather than feel as if we've got to have a revolution. Uh, I guess trusting in those things and, and hopefully recognising that some of the, certainly in English football, some of the young talent that's, that's emerging now both in the Premier League and, and many other leagues and also into the national teams is quite exciting to watch uh, and I think it'll be really nice to hopefully see that evolve over time also think you know whilst these things perhaps aren't always that helpful if we have a successful World Cup like with the women with the European Championships I think if you have a successful competition it almost becomes a kind of springboard for uh, hopefully the evolution of those particular principles if you don't do quite so well that often then becomes when a new broom is expected to sweep clean so I guess success you know just before Christmas in Qatar is pretty good pretty important for English football and I know you're too modest to say this yourself, but look, long-term player development is exactly that. And look, the successes we've had with some of these young young English players that have come through the FA system over years, I know you've been part of that process because the stuff you put in place all those years back with the FA is, is played out, you know. And by building that base and getting those those players back then stronger, the ones that are coming through now, they've helped the next generation come through as well. So um, I know you'd never say it yourself because you're too modest, but the, I, I know what you did at the FA and it was fantastic. And I'm not just using your handling, I know there's a team of people, but I think that revolutionized things back then i don't think we need revolution now it's evolution right it's just staying in the process and keeping the things that work and, and, and revisiting again and again crafting it right as we move forward um but it's in a good place right and if we can just keep evolving it to stay in a good place that should be enough 100 percent. and we, we were really fortunate kind of like the leadership of the, the trevor brookings of the world the les howies of the world the nick levitts of the world um and the evolution into the, the dan ashworths of the world um i think we we're really lucky that you had people that were happy to plant acorns that they know they wouldn't sit in the shade of the oak tree yeah. um, that were happy to start what was an, an important period of evolution 
and stick with it over a number of years because as you've alluded to development is a long-term process it isn't something that's fixed in six months or a year and holding your nerve and sticking at it when perhaps it starts to rumble a little bit and it becomes a little bit unsteady were really important factors from many of those people that I've mentioned that support these you know people like me that were trying to influence stuff on the ground to be able to carry on doing it that way absolutely okay final question if there was one thing you could change about the world of coaching what would that be um what would I change I'd probably continue some of the evolution around the way that the sort of games program looks um, to enable players to have greater variety in the games program. And I think they're really nice examples, both in grassroots and in the perceived elite or academy game, where um, changes have been made, that people have got more flexibility about what competition structures look like to play somewhere it's competitive, somewhere it's not, some in three aside, some in seven aside, some in five aside, some in 11 aside, which I think has been really good. I still worry at times that we're still guided by governance and dogma it's easy to administrate it in this way hence we'll do it in that way which isn't always necessarily in the best interest of the kids and can sometimes constrain coaches from perhaps doing what they think might be best because there's perceived to be a negative consequence of not doing it the way that everybody else is doing it so I think the more positive steps that we continue to make to recognize that there's benefits to playing lots of different formats of the game and being really purposive about how and when we do it about having moments where winning is absolutely everything where winning is perhaps perceived to be less important and we can do some other things and the more we can continue that evolution, the more likely we are to come up with players that are able to adapt to varying consequences as a, as a result of just experiencing the breadth of the game. Encouraging that variety, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. And then making sure there's enough repetition of, of football, of the football experience itself. Now, over a number of years, there have been a number of people that have done a lot of analysis of the amount of time that players spend training and the amount of time they spend actually playing in matches. And the more that we can sort of, you know, not necessarily re redress some of that balance, but increase the amount of time that players are actually playing the game of football as opposed to planning your and my training sessions. Brilliant. Ben, thank you so much for your time again. Thanks for walking us through the book. Um, best of luck with it. I'm sure it's going to be a massive success again. And, you know, any coach that wants to better themselves and help their players, I'm sure will jump on this and be all over it. Like I say, all the links will be in the show notes so they can people can find it nice and easily. Um, if people want to reach out to you, Ben, and say hello or find out what you're up to, is it, is it possible? And if so, what's the best way of doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, social media, LinkedIn, um, Twitter. I've got a very small Instagram thing that's uh, not really doing much. <laughs> well, I can't use Instagram. I don't the, old, the older I get, the harder it gets to go with Instagram. Yeah, exactly. so, um, so, yeah, no, I'm happy, I'm happy to interact with people as, as they see appropriate. So I appreciate the opportunity. So thanks for having me on. Cheers, Ben. Well, look, best of everything. Um, we've not spoken about Fulham, but we won't because this is about the book and stuff. But I'm sure you do wonderful things there. I hear great things about Fulham as well. I'm lucky because I sometimes get some of the boys get to visit and stuff. So um, it's all going well there, I'm sure. But will you come back on maybe within a year, third book or no third book, and just update us how things are going? Is that all right? Happily, yeah. Top man. All right. Thanks, Ben. Best of everything. Cheers, Scott. This episode was brought to you in association with our friends at Soccer Coach Weekly. Established since 2006, Soccer Coach Weekly is a leading source of inspiration and advice for all grassroots coaches. Join thousands of youth soccer coaches just like you, saving time and effort in their goal of having the most effective, enjoyable and successful coaching journey for them and their players. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode.